Okay, it's 12 o'clock, so let's get started. Welcome everybody to the monthly estate planning update. Hope everyone is doing great. Uh, I want to thank everyone for joining me this month. Uh, quick note, if, as always, if you have your phone not on mute, I would ask that you please put it on mute. That way, um, no coughs or voices can be heard, um, incidentally, in the background. Uh, but this month we've got what seems like it might be a longer topic, but is actually going to be quite short because there's not a lot of changes on the trust and estates end, but I thought it might be helpful just to run through some of the actual tax law changes that have taken place with respect to trust and estates, mainly because those have not been publicized quite as well as the income tax changes. Now, obviously, the income tax changes do affect trust and estates somewhat, but um, as I mentioned, there's not a lot out there on what has happened with the gift tax and estate tax and the generation skipping transfer tax, mainly because there's not a whole lot that has actually happened. So uh, just to kind of give you the meat of what's going on first, I'll lay the groundwork um, for those of you who are or are not familiar with how gift and estate taxes work, but um, from an estate tax perspective, you have an exclusion amount, which basically says if your estate is at or below that exclusion amount, no estate tax will be paid. And if you die with an estate that exceeds that amount after taking into account any deductions you could receive, then you'll be taxed at a rate of 40 cents for every dollar over and above that exclusion amount um, attributable to the value of your estate. So that amount uh, the base amount used to be five million dollars and it was indexed for inflation every year so uh, most recently in 2017 the indexing had taken it up to 5.49 million uh, so in 2017 had you died with an estate uh, worth less than 5.49 million no estate tax would have been due and then for example maybe if you died with an estate worth 6.49 million after deduction and other uh, discounts and other things available uh, to reduce the value, then that million dollars over the 5.49 million exclusion would have been taxed at a rate of 40%. So in essence, you would have had a $400,000 estate tax on that estate of 6.49 million. Uh, now, a couple things have happened uh, on the estate tax side. One, the base amount of 5 million upon which they uh, apply that indexing uh, for cost of living has increased now to a base amount of 10 million. So there's been a doubling essentially of the estate tax exclusion amount, um, but at the same time, the technique used to index that amount for inflation every year has changed as well um, to a smaller amount typically known as the chained CPI. So the combined effect of both of those is that 10 million indexed for inflation in 2018 has essentially set the estate tax applicable exclusion amount at 11.18 million. So in 2018, uh, if you die with an estate over 11.18 million, you'll pay estate tax on whatever amount exceeds 11.18 million, but essentially that first 11.18 million of an individual's estate is not subject to estate tax. And in the case of a married couple, um, both of those amounts can be combined uh, to create um, 
$22.36 million in wealth, potentially, um, that could be passed tax-free to heirs upon the death of both spouses. Now, in terms of how you preserve both spouses' exclusion amount, not, ha not a lot has changed. Um, portability has been one of the big hot-button topics, and portability, for those who are not familiar with that term, uh, refers to what's known as the deceased spousal unused exclusion amount, or the DESUI, which is a mouthful, but in operation all that says is that if you have a spouse who dies and does not use up all of his or her estate tax exclusion amount, then that unused portion can be left to the survivor uh, to offset any estate taxes that may they may owe, as well as any gift taxes they may incur during life as well. Uh, so in our example, if you had a spouse who, say, died with a $9.18 million estate in 2018, they'd have $2 million of exclusion that they don't use. And that $2 million could be left to the survivor, and that survivor would then have a $13.18 million exclusion, uh, taking into account both the basic amount and the deceased spousal unused exclusion amount. Now, in order to make that election, the estate of the first spouse to die has to file an estate tax return, which can be a huge burden and undertaking in and of itself given the uh, appraisals and valuation reports you have to obtain. So because of that, um, it's important to look at the terms of the plan to make sure it maximizes opportunities to file an abbreviated return, potentially. Um, so with a portability return, if everything goes to the spouse, then you don't have to actually estimate the actual value of each and every asset going to the surviving spouse. Instead, you can give a ballpark range um, within a $250,000 window for purposes of determining the unused exclusion that is ultimately left to the survivor. So that covers the estate tax law changes, um, the doubling of the exclusion amount, um, from a base of 5 to a base of 10 indexed for inflation. Um, now, moving on to the gift tax, uh, for those who are not familiar with how the gift tax operates, um, it takes into account basically your cumulative gifts for all years that you've been alive and then ultimately reconciles those with estate tax that's owed at your death, um, just so there is no difference in giving away life or giving away wealth during life, or waiting until death to do so. Um, now, we won't get into the weeds about how exactly that happens, but it's important to note that there's a couple exclusions that come into play when we look at uh, the gift tax. First is that you can give up to a certain dollar amount per person per year um, to any limited any unlimited number of persons uh, and as long as your gifts to that one person don't exceed that exclusion for the year then no gift tax is owed if the gift was of a present interest. So that amount has indexed for inflation now. It was $14,000 per recipient of gifts in 2017. It has now increased to 15000 per recipient for 2018. So um, if you were getting 
give, say, cash to one of your children, um, if the amount of cash you gave them for the year was under 15000 and this is speaking in general terms, no gift tax return would have to be filed and no gift tax would be calculated. However, let's say you gave them $15,001. Well, that $1 over would force you to then have to file a gift tax return and report technically gift tax owed on that $1 in excess of the annual exclusion amount. Now, once you get into that territory, instead of paying gift tax out of pocket, you instead get to apply in advance, essentially, a portion of your estate tax exclusion amount to that lifetime transfer. So, instead, you would... Uh, essentially offset that transfer by the exclusion amount, and your cumulative lifetime taxable gifts would use up a portion potentially of that estate tax exclusion amount. And then the calculations would be reconciled at death, and we're not going to get into that, but essentially the, the, the best way to think of it is that after taking into account that $15,000 per recipient per year for lifetime transfers, you can shield up to now $11.18 million in wealth transfers, both during life and at death combined, without paying any gift or estate tax. And of course, uh, the generation skipping transfer tax is also in play. That also uses, by reference, the gift and estate tax exclusion amount. So the generation skipping transfer tax has also benefited from the doubling of that exclusion amount, essentially. Um, once again, that's one of those where it's so technically nuanced that we won't get into the weeds on it. Um, it's just one change to keep in mind as you're working with clients. Now, the biggest thing isn't necessarily what has changed, but what hasn't changed or what came as a surprise during the uh, negotiation and enactment of the uh, Tax Act uh, towards the end of 2017. Uh, one item that had long been on the chopping block even before Trump was elected and even in his proposals that didn't make it into the final tax bill is an elimination in the step-up in basis for income tax purposes at the death of the owner of property. So to give you background, if you die owning a piece of property and leave it to somebody else, if its value has gone up since you purchased it such that its value is greater than your basis, then if you were to sell it immediately prior to death, you would have a capital gain equal to the difference between that basis and its current fair market value. But in exchange for the application of the estate tax, one income tax benefit that's granted is that if you die holding that property and leave it to one of your heirs, its basis is increased to its date of death fair market value. Uh, so that's a huge benefit because if the heir turns around and sells it the next day, they don't have to pay capital gains tax on any of the gain that accrued during your lifetime as the original owner of the property. Um, so there's a huge income tax savings to be obtained through the maximization of the step-up in income tax basis. Um, a lot of planning with the higher exclusion amount has shifted now to emphasize uh, that step-up in income tax basis as being a core 
component of tax planning. So on my end, what we've been doing a lot with clients is working to take assets or trusts that were previously intended to uh, escape estate taxation and force them to be subject to the estate tax uh, because the trade-off for that is that you get that step up in income tax basis. Now I mentioned that the step up applies to assets that you own, but the broader way to look at it is that the step up in basis applies to any assets that would be included in your estate for estate tax purposes. Um, now that can include assets you don't own either. Uh, maybe assets held in trust over which you've held certain powers at your death, such as maybe a general power of appointment, or assets that you put into trust over which you retain certain rights, maybe the right to use those assets or the right to receive income from those assets. There's any number of ways in which this could be done, but uh, with the higher exclusion amount, uh, there's less of a chance of causing an estate tax problem by forcing assets to be included in the gross estate in order to also achieve that step up in income tax basis. Uh, so traditionally, a lot of planning was designed to avoid the estate tax at the expense of also not using that step up in income tax basis. And a lot of that uh, owed to the fact that the estate tax exclusion amount was much lower. In fact, in as recently as 2001, I think, it was only $675,000. So we can see that since 2001, it has now increased almost 20-fold. Uh, so because of that, estate tax is no longer as much of a concern for most clients, and the bigger concern is making sure that family wealth, either inherited in trust or transferred to other heirs in trust, can get the benefit of that step up in income tax basis that it wouldn't have otherwise received before. Now, one other uh, change that kind of skated under the radar because they emphasized it with respect to business owners and not so much trust and estates is the fact that if you own a, an interest in a pass-through entity, you can receive an annual deduction of 20% of the qualified business income of that taxable entity. So, um, a lot of analysis is out there as to how that applies to individuals. There has been very little analysis as to how that applies to trusts and estates. But in the initial drafts of the tax bill, uh, that deduction was not going to apply to uh, trusts and estates at first. However, in the end product, the end bill that was actually signed, trusts and estates were not uh, excluded. They can get the benefit of that 20% annual deduction. Now, very little analysis has been done as to how that works, um, and I'm sure that it will be forthcoming at some point, but... Uh, uh, given that there's not an immediate pressing need to figure that out, uh, there hasn't been a lot of uh, academic uh, analysis or research in that in that world, I guess. Uh, I'll be doing some of that myself, so perhaps on a future call, I can get into the weeds a little bit more as to how that deduction actually works for your clients who own business interests in pass-through entities and choose to title those in the name of, say, a trust. Now one other weird item that kind of flew under the radar um, that a lot of uh, 
even CPAs and practitioners who are following this aren't aware of is a change in the kiddie tax rules. Um, the kiddie tax really uh, applies to minors or dependent children who have unearned income, uh, in other words, non-wage income, that uh, exceeds a certain small threshold. Um, and in that case, their unearned income generally was subject to income tax at their parents' rate. Uh, so if they had a parent in, say, a 20% bracket, then the child's unearned income would be taxed at the parent's rate instead of getting the benefit of maybe a 0% or 10% rate that would have otherwise applied to the child had the child been an, an independent taxpayer who wasn't claimed as a dependent on a parent's income tax return. Now that was designed to keep parents from essentially shifting income from their own return uh, into the name of their child to achieve an overall lower income tax liability. Now that rule was pretty simple before, however it has now changed where children, instead of being taxed at their parents' rates, will be treated as independent taxpayers who are subject to much more compressed income tax brackets. So essentially the income tax brackets that apply to trusts and estates now apply to children in terms of figuring out the income tax on their unearned income. Uh, so the trust and estate tax brackets apply the new maximum income tax rate of 37% once income exceeds $12,500 in a year. Uh, contrast that with an individual or a couple where that highest bracket isn't hit until several hundred thousand dollars of income has been earned. Uh, so obviously that can have a huge effect on children who have inherited wealth that generates income. And I think the biggest uh, effect we're going to see is in trusts that are being set up for minor children or for grandchildren. Uh, it used to be that you would uh, gain a tax advantage by distributing out or distributing trust income out to them instead of having it accumulate in the trust for their benefit, that advantage has now gone away. So um, for your clients who have children or grandchildren who they have set up or wish to set up a trust for, um, that's going to really affect their income tax picture. Now, in terms of changes, that really covers most of the 30,000-foot view. There's a couple other things floating out there um, for those who do a fair amount of prenuptial agreement planning in connection with um, their estate plans. Um, so if you have a client with a prenup, um, the alimony rules have changed where for alimony awards, which are created or modified after this year, um, alimony will no longer be deductible to the payor spouse. Uh, so that used to be a significant component to prenuptial agreements and divorce separation agreements, um, maximizing alimony um, for sole, the sole purpose of getting that tax advantage. Uh, with that change for clients who have a prenuptial agreement in place, obviously they may want to revisit that piece um, to take into account the fact that a tax benefit they previously relied upon will no longer be there. And then for your clients who have a lot of um, securities or holdings in corporations which are taxed as 
C corporations, in other words, corporations that aren't taxed as pass-throughs but as separate tax-paying entities, um, the corporate tax rate has dropped from 35% to 21%. Um, so that could create some tax planning opportunities, especially for uh, C corporations and for S corporations that have substantial built-in gains. Um, so if you have clients who say have inherited C corporation stock or hold it in a trust um, and have avoided certain transactions within the corporation itself due to the potential double taxation, um, there may be a limited window through 2026 where those types of transactions could take place uh, at a reduced income tax cost. But that is it for the estate and trust tax update. Um, if you have any questions outside of this call, I would encourage you to please email me. Um, as some of you may have seen in the email I circulated advertising this call today, I am looking at converting this over um, not necessarily as a replacement for the live call, but as a supplement to it uh, as more of a podcast format. So because of that, um, it'll have less audience participation and potentially fewer questions. So um, each month I would encourage all of you to get your questions in regarding the topic to be covered, and I'm going to aim to be um, in the boat of giving much more advance notice of what each month's topic is going to be. That way you have time to think of meaningful questions and email those to me that way in case you plan on listening to the podcast. I can make sure I address your question as well. Um, but as always, um, thank you for tuning in. Um, if you have any questions, please email me. Um, but please join me next month as well. And I'm going to, for the first time, go ahead and tell you what next month's topic is going to be. Next month, we're going to cover an item we touched on today, which is prenuptial agreements and cohabitation agreements. When you use them, uh, what their purpose is and what benefits they can have for your clients and also uh, the quagmire of technical formalities and requirements you have to comply with up front to make sure that this type of agreement is respected in court if it is ultimately challenged at some point down the road, either due to a termination of marriage or due to a death of one or more spouses. But thanks again for tuning in. Uh, as always, um, please let me know if you have any questions or if I can be a resource for you. And I look forward to uh, hosting you next month on March 13th for a discussion on prenuptial agreements and cohabitation agreements. Thanks again, everybody.